to the Africa is a Country podcast. My name is William Shorkey and you are listening to Africa is a Country's weekly talk and interview show on politics and culture on the continent as well as in the world from an African and left-wing perspective. It's good to be back. I hope everyone had a restful holiday period to the extent that holiday periods can be restful and that everyone is feeling energized for the new year. There is lots of work to be done. If you missed the last episode that we recorded just before the festive season, it was a discussion of the biggest thing in the news at the time, which was the FIFA World Cup. And we traced how the geopolitical fissures, which are forming around the world, turned football into an arena for contesting political and cultural power. And coming into 2023, that is still the story. Of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war that it ignited is the big headline and its many ramifications, especially on energy and economic stability. So we want to continue exploring that and especially how a multipolar order is taking shape after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and being determined to impose economic costs on Putin's regime for its aggression, the West quickly and unilaterally undertook to sanction and isolate it. But these decisions were not without ramifications for other countries in the world, especially large swaths of the global South, who are dependent on Russian imports, especially energy and wheat. Feeling the economic pain of the West's economic war and keen to capitalize on their need for support, countries in the global South have adopted a strategic neutral stance for better political leverage. As Tim Sahai argues in Phenomenal World in a piece called A New Non-Alignment, countries like China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates have refused to sacrifice their national interests to punish Russia. More importantly, they believe their bargaining power in the new Cold War will result in sweeter trade, technology, and weapons deals from the West. So, although the old non-alignment was rooted in moral and political principles, today's one is driven by pragmatism. On this program, Tim joins us to discuss the future of non-alignment in the era of great power competition between the West and the China-Russia axis. Will non-aligned countries mount a coordinated response to global challenges such as energy and security? And how will they respond to the coming debt crisis precipitated by the West's monetary policy tightening, which has been pursued to contain rising global inflation? So if you want to find out, give a listen to my interview with Tim. But before you do, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow Africa as a Country on all major social media platforms. But more importantly, head over to africasacountry.com to check out new writing on Africa. So here's my interview with Tim. Joining me on the program is Tim Sahai, who is currently the Senior Policy Manager at Green New Deal Network, which is a coalition of labor, climate and environmental justice organizations, growing a movement to pass national and international green policies. He has advised congressional officers designing investment, trade, procurement and industrial policies that simultaneously create jobs, address climate change, curb racial and economic inequity. His research interests are industrial policy and energy politics, 
Originally from Mumbai, he's based in New York City, and his writing has appeared on various publications and mainly on Phenomenal World, where he curates along with Kate McKenzie a fantastic publication on today's global polycrisis called The Polycrisis. Tim, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start by talking about a piece that you recently wrote for The Polycrisis, which is titled A New Non-Alignment and I'll attach a link in the show notes so viewers and listeners can check it out. And it's about how in the wake of the war in Ukraine, states in the global south have been reluctant effectively to pick a side and have insisted on a stance on neutrality so as to leverage their politics uh, for, for favorable policies and concessions from the West, from China, from whichever country it may be. And maybe this is a bit of a pedantic quibble, but I was wondering about calling this a non-alignment, because if we think about the original iteration of the non-aligned movement in the 20th century, it had an explicitly anti-colonial, anti-imperial orientation, and its goal was to reorder the international state system entirely so that it followed more egalitarian lines, whereas today's non-alignment seems a little bit more pragmatic. Um, does the terminology matter, uh, or do you think it's it's worthy of the name to call this uh, a non-alignment, and, and what's driving it exactly? Yeah, I think what's driving it is a fissuring of the global economy after the war. Um, that's that's the main driver. We've been in a period of very strong geopolitical competi competition between the US and China, um, and countries have been sort of forced to pick sides. And that was already sort of forcing countries to sort of be like, hey, I, you know, we, we, we are linked to the Chinese via economic trade, via commodity flows, um, and we want to climb the ladder just like they have done. Um, and that's something that we might want to think about copying. And then the West sort of comes along and says, no, you have to pick a side. You really can't pick Huawei for your 5G telecom networks. You really can't pick, you know, a chip company that produces cheap chips. And so countries were already being forced to pick sides. Um, and then once the invasion, once Russia invaded Ukraine, um, there was, um, you know, a very small coterie of countries, the G7 countries, the seven sort of largest economies um, in the world, largely rich, largely white, largely industrialized. Um, and these countries essentially created a sort of a financial firewall um, against Russia. So while, the, while Russia engaged in a very brutal and bloody bombing uh, campaign and a, and a ground invasion, the West did not respond with ground troops. It responded by arming the Ukrainians to fight against the aggression on their, on their homeland. And it responded by a very sharp sort of financial iron curtain that falls in Russia and literally traps any banking movement, any trade movement, um, any technological movements between Russia and the rest of the world with the goal to essentially bring the Russian economy down to its knees, prevent its warfighting potential, and perhaps change Putin and his regime's mind. 
Um, and then essentially the G7 realized, wait, hang on a second, we can't really do this uh, financial iron curtain without the cooperation of the big producing and importing countries that buy stuff from Russia. And so, you know, essentially the G7 created these sanctions without really talking to India, without talking to Brazil, without talking to Indonesia or Mexico or South Africa. Um, and that's where the non-alignment movement has really begun. These countries essentially took, um, they thought this was, you know, terribly rude. <laughs> um, and the West was being completely non-cooperative as if these large countries that have been growing very rapidly for the last three or four decades did not matter. When it came to calling the shots, the US um, could just coordinate sanctions with its allies without anyone else in the room. So that's sort of the origin of that non-alignment, that sense of, hang on, we are like three quarters of the, of the world um, in terms of people, we are two thirds in terms of global uh, GDP, and we are essentially not considered uh, before sanctions are created that has tremendous ripple effects and blowback impacts on our economies. And I think has that's sort of the, source, the source of it. Mm. Has it produced results so far, or is it too early to say? How have countries been able to leverage their neutral positions in their relationship to the West? Yeah, so this is exactly sort of what I looked into. Like, what's what? Okay, so you, you're non-aligned. You, you know, you voted, you abstained from a vote at the UN. What's what does that really mean? Like, what what are you hoping to demonstrate, and what have you gotten out of it? Um, and so I kind of went to sort of the big emerging market countries um, that have a lot of geopolitical heft thanks to their population, thanks to their market countries like India, Indonesia, Brazil, uh, UAE. And I asked, okay, what has been happening in the last you know, year since the invasion began? And I found that a lot of these countries have experienced um, a lot of attention from Western countries, in particular from Japan, from Germany, from France, from from the US and in India, for example, you know, on the day of the invasion on the 24th of, of February, um, within a week, uh, you had the Russian finance, uh, foreign minister Lavrov show up in India, the Chinese foreign minister show up in India. And they were essentially sort of saying, join hands with us. Because if you join hands with us, then none of these sanctions um, can really hope to, to achieve their goals. And India essentially sort of said, you know what, make the case to us. Um, and so the, the the Russians and the Chinese sort of offered various sorts of deals uh, surrounding commodities in particular. So get, the Russians offered in the, you know, various discounts on the price of oil that they were, uh, that they were uh, selling. Um, and then as soon as those visits happened from, you know, Russia and China, you suddenly had the Japanese prime minister show up, the American sent an emissary, um, Europe, the EU sent Ursula uh, von der Leyen, the um, European president, and they signed a series of deals in March and April for everything from green investment to military uh, equipment. Um, and that was new. That's, that's something that India and other developing countries have wanted for a long time. A lot of FDI, a lot of trade, and a lot of technology transfer deals which they had, hadn't been getting. They've been sort of barking up this tree for, for, for many, many decades now. Um, and this was quite sudden and quite a large influx of um, uh, new technology deals. 
And as far as a country like India or Mexico or Brazil is concerned, what they really want is technology to power their sort of catch up, continual catch up growth. Um, and it seemed to me that there's a, there's a case where each of these big countries um, got uh, technology transfers um, uh, in, in a way that they hadn't gotten before. How sustainable is this approach? I mean, there are many trajectories that competition between the United States and China could take in the coming years, but assuming it escalates, will there come a point where the pressure to align more strongly with one side as opposed to another increases, or is it viable that these countries can maintain their neutral positions? Uh, is it possible that they could coordinate non-aligned actions uh, a lot more strongly? So rather than becoming a sort of loose block of, of countries that in major forums such as the UN General Assembly uh, abstain from votes, um, they develop shared imperatives and goals um, hearkening back to the original non-aligned movement. Um, yeah, what are the incentives that are at play? Yeah, I think this is this is a very interesting question because it gets to the heart of sort of how do you politically create a coalition that is actually very diverse? You know, there's mm. Brazil and Indonesia that were past leaders um, in the non-alignment movement. And these countries are large commodity exporters. You know, they produce uh, wheat and palm oil and, and food and meat. Um, and then you have big importing countries like India. Um, uh, and importing countries and exporting countries always find it hard to to sort of make uh, deals together because uh, they have fundamentally different interests. They have fundamentally different sort of balance sheets. One of them, a country like Brazil, is earning a lot of dollars every time it sells iron ore or oil onto the global market, whereas a country like India is using its dollars to buy oil from the global market. So, so it's very hard to, to actually create a club with very different sets of countries. You tend to create clubs on, from countries that are fairly similar. Um, and so the question is, can you actually coordinate these different countries? And for there, it's exactly, you know, what you ask, you actually need um, political leadership. So you need somebody like Lula from Brazil or Modi from India, whoever it is, like, or Amlo from Mexico. They have to actually sit together and come to what do we sort of hope to coordinate on? Do we sort of fight each other? for vaccines, you know, the, the way we saw the last um, couple of years, where it was essentially, you know, every man for himself as far as um, buying vaccines in the global market was. Um, coordination was very difficult to achieve. Or is there going to be sort of, you know what, we are roughly in the same boat. We are all looking to change, you know, policies at the World Bank, policies at the IMF around debt and currency crisis, uh, policies at the WTO that allow for um, uh, easier trade um, and, and, and lower tariffs and less protectionism in, in, in general. And so there, there, I think, is the actual challenge of the non-alignment movement. And is it actually going to achieve um, things together versus each man for himself? Mm, something you mentioned, which could be a potential pathway for greater coordination is uh the debt crisis um and 
you know, a debt crisis that affects the global south has kind of been projected for the last couple of years. But could you walk us through what are the factors driving sovereign debt crises in the global south at the moment? We, of course, know that one of the headline stories in the last six months or year has been rising inflation, the tightening of monetary policy um, in Western economies, particularly the U.S. Fed, um, and the ripple effects of those decisions. So maybe we could take a step back and if, if you may, give us a brief primer on what the current inflation crisis is all about, um, what sets this one <clears throat> apart, um, and why is it such a big problem for the global economy? Right. I, yeah, I, th I think I think the step back is sort of necessary and sort of see it in the light of post-2008 financial crisis to 2022. Because after the 2008 financial crisis, um, almost all countries responded by reducing borrowing, borrowing rates. So interest rates dropped down to the floor and remain on the floor for 10 plus years. So basically everyone was encouraged to borrow cheaply. And in an ideal world, they'll be investing it in, in, in growth enhancing stuff for their economies. Of course, you know, we didn't do that. We had a lot of asset inflation. We had a lot of property bubbles uh, all across the world. Um, but what you really had was countries uh, in the developing world borrowing, going on a sort of a borrowing binge because for the first time they could do it at much lower rates. And I think this is sort of like the fundamental part of the world economy is that it's extremely hierarchical. And everyone knows that there's sort of a core centered around London and um, uh, New York and the G7 countries, broadly speaking. And those central banks can essentially protect their countries from, uh, I mean, they can essentially issue debt that every other country wants to buy or every other investor wants to buy because they're seen as completely safe assets. And then if a country like Zambia or if a country like Ghana wants foreign investors to come in and buy their debt, they usually need to give them very attractive terms, much, much higher interest rates, you know, 10 to 15% interest rates, whereas a country um, like the US or Canada or Australia, you know, can issue sovereign debt for very, very, um, you know, pennies, like, you know, 0.5%, 1% um, uh, debt. And so that basically means that when in the, in, in the wake of the financial crisis, a lot of developing countries went on a binge and borrowed a lot of um, debt denominated in dollars. And they also borrowed a lot of uh, debt from um, other countries, notably China, that also went on a lending spree in the last um, um, roughly 2010 to 2020 for about 10 years. Um, and so essentially countries binged on debt. And debt is good. It's good to binge on debt if you can convert it into productive investments, if you can uh, convert it into um, industries that, you know, allow you to, to earn dollars on, on the global market and essentially invest in, in, your, in your people and in, um, and in your country. And the problem really became that because a lot of this debt is dollar denominated, um, something very peculiar started to happen post um, uh, the, the, the pandemic where interest rates were down on the floor but you had a massive shutdown and reopening of the economy. Lots of supply chains broke. Lots of companies, you know, went out of business. 
hundreds of millions of people were unemployed. And Western countries essentially responded by uh, going on a massive tax, a borrow and spend uh, spree to kind of keep the economy afloat, to keep firms afloat, families afloat. And the developing world was looking at the rich world, you know, borrowing and spending on their people. And they're saying, hang on a minute, like we'd like to do that. And it turned out for for a country like India or Brazil or Mexico, to do that, they would, um, you know, they were essentially, they would have to pay steeper prices on the global bond market. So some of them balked at that. So India, you know, basically spent about one or 2% of GDP on its COVID sort of rescue program, family and firms rescue program. Whereas a country like the US spent 25% of its GDP borrowing from the global markets and spending into people's pockets. So that really created a massive gulf that is, you know, uh, enormous amount of social crises across across the third world by not being able to borrow at rock bottom interest rates, uh, but instead paying um, a, a steeper price for it. And so over the last 10 years, they've just sort of built up an enormous amount of pile of debt. And then after, after 2021, as the economy very quickly starts to rebound, you start to see inflation pick up from these broken supply chains and from... Um, consumer spending and so on. And essentially over the last year, year and a half, every country has been trying to break the back of inflation. And the way they've tried to do that is by making money more expensive. You raise, the, uh, you raise interest rates that are under the control of your central bank. And as you make money expensive, every entity in the world economy that is borrowing stops borrowing and starts you know, tightening their belts. And that is what reduces the total amount of sort of spending into the economy. And that's what central bankers hope will bring down inflation. So in other words, the sort of solution to um, uh, you know, global inflation is jack up interest rates, create a global recession, hope that recession is mild. And that's what will bring spending down into the economy. And the sort of the, that's, that's what you know, the G7 countries are doing. That's their policy target. It has created collateral damage, and that collateral damage is essentially somebody else's problem. You know, as um, Nixon's Treasury Secretary famously said in the 1970s during a very similar moment, uh, the dollar is our currency and it's your problem. You know, my job is to govern this national economy, not think about the developing world or the third world or dollar debt crisis. So, okay, so you have this factor of a massive pile of debt built up over the last 10 years, largely denominated in dollars, and all of a sudden you're spending um, a country that has borrowed all this money has to now pay it back in dollars that are harder to find. So those dollars that you're paying it back are, um, you know, your currency has been devalued, um, dollars become stronger. So you're just paying back more in dollars. So that's one problem. And the second problem that you have is, is that you're actually just paying more in interest payments. So a country like Ghana is actually paying 60% of its gov- government revenue in interest payments. You know, it's just, it's really shocking to see these kind of numbers. And a country like Chad and Zambia, it's just like, you know, they're, they're basically, all of their government revenues are going to service their debt. So this is a completely sort of unsustainable state of affairs for low-income countries. But it's even the middle-income countries that had sort of gorged themselves on debt that are facing exactly this sort of double whammy of a problem. 
And if that wasn't, if that wasn't bad enough, um, you know, any country is sort of buying stuff, in particular food and energy from mm. the rest of the world. And if you're buying food and energy, and these prices have shot up since the war, they've actually been shooting up since the um, since uh, early 2021. Before the war began, they were getting more and more expensive. You had a wave of sort of food crises and food riots. Um, so all of a sudden, you're paying more um, to buy essentials like food and energy. And we've seen, you know, we've seen this play out in every country. Every country that you can name has had, you know, essentially society is boiling when the price of food and energy goes up. And here there's a big difference between developing countries and the rich world in that most people in developing countries spend up to half of their paychecks on their essentials, food and energy, petrol, diesel, um, and food. So countries are sort of forced to pay attention when societies boil in this way. And this is uh, sort of the element of the, the, the debt crisis, the dollar debt crisis that really bites because you're sitting there having to sort of balance your books You'd borrowed dollars and, uh, and piled up on dollar debt when you thought you would have very low interest payments. And all of a sudden, your interest payments are spiking. Your bills are coming due every month that are very high. And you have fewer and fewer dollars to pay it off. So what you get is a liquidity crunch at the end of every month. Um, you know, we saw this most sort of shockingly in Sri Lanka with mm. um, essentially countrywide blackouts. And people going to the petrol pump and standing at the queue for days to get a few liters. Um, and the country's sort of finance ministry essentially saying, guys, there's a there's a tanker of, of, of gasoline and diesel sitting in our ports. We don't have the dollars to pay them. Mm. So you get, you know, it's it's not like an abstract thing. I, I, I you know, sovereign debt crises are really sort of the three words that are going to put most people to sleep the moment you utter them. But, you know, you're just like, holy moly, like, you know, this country is going to essentially boil and explode if we don't get dollars um, right now. And if we don't sort of restructure these um, massive piles of debt and restructuring is again, you know, just says, I don't know, pause payments. I don't know, pause payments for a year, pause your interest rate payments for a year or two while you sort the mess out and you focus on, people first rather than the interests of bondholders so that's essentially what Sri Lanka did they just defaulted on their debt and in an ideal world there should be more defaults on on um, countries that most more countries should just do what Sri Lanka did and say you know what we're going to take a year or two to sort the mess out we're going to pause our payments and you know what we'll pay you back but we'll pay you back you know instead of our 20-year loan Mm -hmm. you're going to get paid back in year 21 and 22 now why doesn't that happen more frequently? Why don't more yeah. countries take that route of just saying, sorry, but I'll pay you when I'll pay you. Um, and yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, what are the possible is, repercussions that they're weighing up? Exactly, exactly. What they are essentially thinking of is the day after. So I've said, bye guys, I'm not paying you, paying you for a couple of years. Um, and the way you do these negotiations is essentially extremely political. It's sort of, I mean, extremely political is a silly way to put it, but essentially who takes the hit, who takes the burden of adjustment, who's actually going to tighten their belts and feel the pain. So at this moment, you know, you could open any newspaper anywhere in, in, you know, anywhere in Africa and you'll find, you know, farmers protesting against the, the, the price of 
fertilizer is going up and industries protesting about the price of energy going up and truckers saying, you know what, we're just going to stop delivering stuff because um, we can't make our ends meet. And so what what um, what countries sort of tend to do um, in, in, in these scenarios is just sort of say, um, we are going to put the burden of adjustment on our people. And the way we do that is by um, cutting our government budgets. So we're just going to, sorry, guys, we're going to have to cut our health budgets. We're going to cut our education budgets, our city planning budgets. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because we are privileging making these interest payments. Because, guys, if we don't make these interest payments, the next year when we go to the bond market to borrow, we are going to face very stiff rates. So this is necessary medicine for now. Keep the creditors on our side. Don't let them get offside. Um, and that's sort of most um, sort of right-wing, left-wing politics tends to fall along along these lines. Is there's um, sort of a coalition domestically in every country that is sort of on the side of creditors. And that coalition tends to be, um, you know, it tends to be export industries. It tends to be the big boys um, in the country. Um, and that domestic political coalition is sort of like creditor friendly, not debtor friendly. Um, and, you know, this creditor coalition will tamp down on any talk about defaulting on your debt. And when things become absolutely unbearable, when sort of shit really hits the fan, essentially, you know, politicians get thrown out of office for delivering bitter medicine. Um, and it's at that point where, you know, you have a new set of people come into power and say, okay, okay, you know, we're going to renegotiate our debt with our creditors. You know, we change the maturity, we'll pay them, you know, we'll pause it now, we'll pay for longer, et cetera, et cetera. So what you're essentially having is society is boiling and then political explosions. And then you may have a round of, you know, more belt tightening, more pain, more bitter medicine or sort of a cooling off period. Um, and then the question really becomes is about this day after is, you know, okay, you, you cut stuff, but what's your plan? You know, a debt is a, it's sort of a promise to pay back in the, in the future. So the question really becomes, can you make a compelling case of what do you hope to do to create your, to increase your country's sort of growth prospects um, over the coming, you know, 10 or 20 years? What, what are you gonna do to uh, increase your tax revenue, you know, because you're going to pay this debt off through by taxing a population. Um, so can you really tax the baddies in your in your in your country? Can you really tax the mining guys and you know the the oil kings and and you know the steel tycoons? Can you do that? Um, yeah, it seems like a, it seems like a catch twenty two because the measures one has to implement in order to widen the tax base and increase tax revenues, as you say, will anger those uh, resistant layers of capital and at the same time also irritate creditors who often want to impose terms and conditions uh, which are market and big business yeah. friendly. Um, so yeah, to ask this question, what, what can you do in that period after when you face this dilemma of needing to increase growth prospects, but that relies on largely interventionist measures, but it also relies on also access to more debt, but you can't get access to more debt because you've still got uh, an existing burden of debt. Um, 
I, I mean, <laughs> in, in, in this scenario, I think you need debt write-offs. You need to sort of wipe the slate clean and you need to write off 10 or 20%. You know, this is not something that is sustainable. Um, and, you know, we are basically entering a period of high interest rates for the foreseeable future. Um, and that's a very different world from the last 10 or 15 years, which is essentially a world of easy lose money, easy to borrow. So if you enter this new world, it's it's actually a new political world where mm-hmm. um, um, creditor-friendly interests start to sort of take over countries, take over countries domestically. Um, and they'll all sort of say the same thing. You know, they'll say, we need to be pro-business. We can't be. We need to cut taxes. Because um, if we don't cut taxes, you know, businesses aren't going to invest. And if businesses don't invest, nobody gets any jobs. So, you know, don't, don't cross them. And so you get these sort of like, very sort of packaged narratives and sort of stories that appear, you know, all over your TV and your news media making the case for why we do need this round of austerity. The problem with austerity and cutting budgets is that it really dampens the country's growth for decades. It creates enormous social pain on families, um, you know, on farms and factories and on anyone you can think of because they are cutting their spending now um, and, um, you know, that essentially usually leads to growth, slowdown, stagnation, lost decades, massive unemployment. We've seen the story play out with the euro crisis in the 2010s, um, you know, massive stagnation for the fortunes of millions of Spanish and Greeks and Italians and Irish um, uh, countries. So we, this is kind of what we, this is sort of the bad scenario of where we head to in 2023, 2024. Because that debt mountain that I sort of talked about, the way it usually works is you just sort of roll over your debt. So whatever debts come due, you issue a fresh round of bonds to pay back the old ones. And this system works if interest rates are low, but when interest rates are going up and up, it's very hard to roll over your debt and issue any fresh debt because there aren't any buyers. And any takers want you know, high, high um, interest rates to be enticed to hold your debt. So rolling over debt becomes a massive problem. And therefore you run into exactly those kind of monthly bill payments, liquidity issues, um, where you simply can't find the dollars on a month by month basis. So you issue, um, so you run into this crunch and you know the entire country can come to a screeching halt. So this doesn't really work for, for you know, it's, not, it's not just the creditors debtors, it actually doesn't work even for the creditors, right? Because um, you know not all of them are gonna get their money. They're, they're essentially like squeezing blood out of stone. Um, and so you tend to get creditor coalitions that kind of understand this, they've been through this, <laughs> This, um, you know, the circus before it happened in the 1980s with the massive third world debt crisis and the 2010s with the massive euro crisis. People have sort of learned their lessons. Creditors have learned their lessons that you can't squeeze blood out of stone. You need to restore growth prospects in the country. And it's fine if we don't get 100 cents for every dollar we lent out. We shouldn't have, we shouldn't have probably been loaning it out to you. We'll be fine with 90 cents on the dollar, 80 cents on the dollar, 85 cents on the dollar. So you get creditor coalitions um, that sort of tend to agree with a particular political coalition in a country that says, right, we're going to do this. This is where we're going to cut our budget. This is where we're going to raise taxes. These are the kind of growth prospects and investments we're going to do. These are the regions, blah, blah, blah. And guys, this is going to work out. And so you need you need that kind of sort of 
agency. And you can't really be doing that on a country-by-country basis because all of these countries that have borrowed a lot are in the same boat. They're all facing very similar problems. Um, and so they need to negotiate together. And that goes back to the question that you asked before, who's doing the coordinating? You know, cartels are very hard to manage. A debtor cartel? Like, have you ever done a rent strike in an, in a, in an apartment building? <laughs> you know, <laughs> coordinating 30, 50 people in a, in a flat and you all say, you know what, this landlord sucks and, you know, there's rats and lice everywhere and they haven't paid their bills and so on. It's very hard to do. And that's mm. essentially the kind of coalition um, that, are, that are cartels that are, that are sort of being created um, right now. Mm. Should this be a priority for left-wing organizing? If I think of, you know, the early 2000s were the halcyon days of the debt cancellation movement. Could that kind of resurgent bottom-up pressure from populations themselves energize states to form these organized uh, debtor cartels um, if, if the political will at the moment is, is presently nascent or, or lacking altogether? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's I mean, in an, in an ideal world, that's what happens, right? You have sort of social yeah. movements that emerge out of the pain. Uh, you know, you have the indignados in, in Spain emerge out of the housing crisis with millions of people losing their homes, they're being thrown out on the streets. And an entire movement uh, emerges to sort of uh, make sure people don't get thrown out onto the streets, make sure that, you know, they get rent pausing um, and uh, make sure that the banks take a bit of the hit and it's not just, you know, the, uh, renters or, or owners who are paying off high, high mortgages. So that kind, of, that kind of sort of bottom-up social mobilization is going to emerge out of the pain and almost by definition, because of the political fissures of in a country, there'll be a narrow set of creditors, a much broader set of debtors. You do tend to get these movements sort of pressure a political party or a couple of political parties um, to negotiate with external creditors. And as the Greeks found, it's actually your domestic politics that matters uh, much more strongly. So if the if the big shipping magnates and the big banks and you know the upper slice of the top 10, 15% side with the creditors, um, you end up getting into, um, uh, you know, the, the, the left-wing and social movements sort of tend to be locked out and sort of face stagnation and, and essentially lose. So it's, 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 it's a question of political organization and at the moment it's absolutely ripe and you've definitely been get. I actually haven't been tracking the news much from, um, you know, Ghana or, um, or Zambia, or, or, or Chad, or Egypt, but there is definitely a lot of indignation and and you know angry angry people out on the streets because of the petrol bills and uh, energy bills. And and uh, just to sort of go back back to the fact that European countries and sort of rich uh, G seven countries were actually able to borrow from the bond markets and put money in people's pockets so that they could pay their bills. So if you were living in the UK, you know, you, you had normal sort of yearly annual bill of, I don't know, 2,000 pounds. And all of a sudden this year it's 10,000 pounds. And the government essentially was forced by Labour um, sitting in the opposition to put a price cap of, I forget the number, around 2,500 pounds. That's it. Nobody's going to be paying more than that. And the remaining amount 
the treasury essentially borrows from the bond markets, puts that money into people's pockets so that they can pay their bills off. So, you know, if, if, if uh, the um, Western countries can be pressured uh, to subsidize people's energy bills, um, you could imagine the same um, happening in your um, uh, Ghana's and South Africa's and India's of, of the world. Um, but it goes back to the question of can those countries actually go to the bond market and borrow 5% of their GDP, 10% of their GDP and say, guys, this is absolutely wild. We need this. There's been a pandemic. There's been war. You know, um, th this this country is going to sink if we don't get those uh, that money into people's pockets or it's going to explode. And so you've found, um, I, I mean, I, I think Pakistan is probably a good case where because of the really, really terrible floods, it kind of just tipped over into, this is just not going to happen. Whatever deal that we had inked with the IMF to, you know, cut our budgets this March and tax this set of people more, that deal is off. That was 2021. We cannot do this post-2022. So you can imagine um, sort of, uh, sort of, um, political movements and parties and elections really mattering in this year and the next year. Mm. And are there are there prospects that conditions could become more favorable uh, at the top, independently of of pressure? I mean, this is this is the the tragedy, I suppose, is that as you've described, it takes a, a great calamity for that kind of um resistance to emerge when states just simply say look yeah it's not going to happen it'll have to wait um and on the one hand it will require organization to make it such that we don't always depend on a calamity in order to get the the will um but that takes time and often requires these sort of moments of exigency to to erupt but you know, coming out of the, the COVID-19 crisis, there was a lot of talk about how uh, global financial institutions were reforming, the IMF was supposedly becoming more socially conscious. In a lot of its reportage, it was acknowledging the imperative to kind of um, redraw the international monetary order to be more favorable to um, countries in the global south. There's also the pressure of green industrialization that they take, and a lot of countries are making pictures <laughs> to how they think the West does play a responsibility. A lot of it is lip service, but a lot of it is also commitments which countries are, are trying to hold them accountable to. Is that a trend that will continue? Is it a lot of hot air? What can we forecast in, in, in 2023? I think it's a trend that will continue because of the non-alignment sort of position of many countries. As we talked about, that's sort of like a bargaining chip, which says, you know what, if you don't give it to us, we're going to go to those lot there. You know, if you don't give us a big enough check, we go to those to that lot there. And so you get these kind of competitive pressures um, where, you know, a country like Egypt is, isn't just going to the IMF, right? Like they're going to other countries, they're going to the Gulf, they're going to the UAE, they're going to any friends um, and promising to give them X or Y or Z, you know, whether it's wheat or arms or, I don't know, soldiers or whatever somebody else needs just so that they can get dollars now to save off a liquidity crisis. Um, and so I, I, think, I think because of that geoeconomic 
pressures at the the west broadly speaking is being sort of pushed into a corner and um um and there are sort of more a lot of proposals at the IMF uh, this year um uh for uh, debt write offs and for the use of you know uh, SDRs and 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 so on to sort of act as sort of quasi dollars that can be granted to poor countries from rich countries so that they can sort of use it for their funding needs um so i think these proposals are only going to accelerate the pandemic so a new round of sort of 500 billion dollars of sdrs that were made available um from rich countries to be recycled towards poor countries to deal with exactly these kind of funding uh, problems um and so you're going to see something similar emerge this year the question always then becomes um you know the big sort of shareholders of the IMF can they agree can all of them agree to to sort of recycle these SDRs and there the US um has played a big sort of blocking role even though you have sort of Biden in the white house and the democrats sort of control both the upper house and the lower house the house and the senate um they were unable to really sort of recycle it to um countries in the developing world and the reason was you know no politician wanted to risk the blowback um if the money went to the wrong places and the wrong countries so the line was oh my god if you if you give these sdrs they're, they're going to land up in the hands of the venezuelans and the iranians and you know they're just terrorists and they're just going to come and and destroy things and therefore don't do it at all um don't give it to anyone just because it's going to go to a few sort of bad apples and no one wants to own that sort of political risk and so the the kind of the veto players um are the major sort of shareholders of the IMF that you know have to agree to these uh, policies so are we going to get a reissuance of another 500 billion dollars of sdrs this year from the IMF maybe not because the republicans have, have taken over the house uh, in the us and they can veto and strike down these deals um but you can imagine um that there, there are sort of lots of clever people sitting around at the IMF and the World Bank thinking about exactly this problem and you know they have vast pots of money and various instruments that can be creatively repurposed so that's sort of that's more the line that they're taking i think everyone realizes that this year a lot of debt is coming due a lot of debt payments are coming due so not the stock of debt but the payments the interest payments are coming due um and most countries just can't do it they just can't find the dollars so there will be a lot of sort of quasi ad hoc kind of solutions offered to countries or you know the 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 terms that were offered to Ghana and Sri Lanka were pretty bad like you know these countries have basically said right we are going to tighten up belts um you know it's we are going to run budget neutral no more no more spending more than than we can take in and so on so they have all committed to quite harsh um adjustment burden of adjustment um and my hope is that this year countries sort of um use their sort of expanded uh leverage thanks to their non-alignment and and look for better uh uh bargains as far as their sort of debt goes um and and if they can't do that then yeah this, this will be a a fairly nasty and you can imagine loads and loads of people getting thrown out of office as i said society is boiling turmoil um and so 
it, it, it's not good for anyone. Like we want that, you know, you want that to be global growth. You want that to be the energy transition. You, you want a lot of things to happen. A lot of, and those are all up in the air if you can't solve the debt problem. Mm. I think, yeah, as, as we've been discussing, all of this originates in, in the fact that all of this debt is denominated in dollars. And so the main priority for these countries is having sufficient supply of dollars in order to service it. But I wanted to ask a question about the dollar hegemony itself. Are there signs of it being undercut? I mean, I can barely understand how it all works, <laughs> but I read an oh, article. No. It, it's, confusing to every, it's confusing to everyone. Um, <laughs> and, and I think there's been a lot of hot air, honestly speaking, on the end of dollar hegemony yeah. uh, because you know russia is going to issue this in in rubles and the chinese yeah. are going to buy oil in one and you're like well, this is what i wanted okay. to ask there was an yeah. article yeah. ft by rana faruha on yeah. exactly this about how global energy trade is de-dollarizing um and one is there any pro- is that actually the case that dollar hegemony could be undercut is it desirable for it to be undercut what does a world of multiple currencies in use look like? Um, and why is dollar hegemony so difficult to undercut in the first place? Why does it have so much staying power, um, regardless of you know the volatility of American political economy and so on? Yeah, I think that is a very interesting question. Like that is a sort of a political instability at the heart of the US. You know, every election is just like absolutely wild. So you have political instability, but you have this hyper dollar empire and dollar hegemony, because while there is political instability, there are sort of adults in charge of the real shit that matters. Um, And so you have this sort of very weird moment where everyone sort of looks at Trump's, you know, antics and, 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 and craziness and racism and the whole lot and says, how, how could these guys still be sort of issuing debt? And the issue really is that it's, it's only debt if you look at one side of your balance sheet. Every debt is owned by someone, right? So if you've taken out a loan for your house or your car or whatever, that is an asset on somebody else's books because what they are getting is a monthly stream of payments from you. And so every sort of side of debt is there's a person who's using that as an asset. And that is really why sort of the dollar world has um, um, sort of a lot of staying power is that both because of the sort of the high level of sort of inequality, a lot of sort of corporate companies, you know, they make a lot of profits. And then what do you do with all that money? You can't just leave it and save it in cash, which is the way sort of most everyday people save up is they just have sort of a little cushion of cash sitting in their in their bank accounts, but both corporate treasuries and governments um, and and wealthy people, you know, they want not to own cash but to own something that gives them interest. And so you buy a dollar asset. So you buy a dollar asset, which is a U.S. Treasury, which is the safest of all assets, which just says, you know, um, you hold this hundred dollars and you get back whatever right now uh two three four percent back whatever it is every month every year um and you will definitely get this entire hundred dollars you know back in 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 five years so it's absolutely risk-free 
So the, the dollar assets tend to be absolutely risk-free if it is a U.S. treasury. If it is um, sort of a bond from um, a, a big company, they tend to be sort of, you know, AA rated and so on. And so these assets are wanted and desired by the rest of the world as a sort of a safe place with very little currency risk. Because what happens in a crisis is everybody kind of floods to the dollar and dollar assets uh, and the U.S. in general acts almost sort of like an, an insurer to the rest of the world. So everybody flies in, buys the safe assets and says, you know what, this is my shelter in the storm. You know, while everybody else is going to be losing money, you know, I'm going to be sort of holding on uh, to the dollar. So that's to, to dollar assets. So that's sort of one reason why the U.S. tends to be, you know, almost anti-fragile, to use Nassim Taleb's term, is that it tends to become stronger after a shock. It doesn't actually become weaker, it becomes stronger after a shock. Okay, so that was sort of like, in some sense, the old world. What's been happening over the last 10 or 15 years is that the U.S. has been sort of weaponizing these dollar assets and says, we don't like you because of what you've done. Kiss your dollar assets goodbye. They are now ours. And that's very weird for investors, you know, in the rest of the world. They they aren't used to some, you know, a, a Russian oligarch that has sort of parked their money in London or in Amsterdam, you know, they're like, this is amazing. Like these countries are going to, you know, they privilege the rights of, of investors and no one's going to come after my dirty money. I'm just going to park it in a, in, a, in a bank account. And lo and behold, you know, because Putin's regime invades Ukraine, um, the West goes strong and hard and sort of um, takes over, grabs an asset, seizes a lot of the assets of oligarchs linked to the Putin regime. And so you've had this sudden sort of moment of fear, this kind of light bulb that went off in the week after the 24th of February across the world's sort of merchant banks and oligarchic networks. And they said, hang on, you're telling me the dollar is not safe anymore? Um, And you're telling me that my asset, my hard-earned wealth, however hard-earned it may be, is actually at the whim of the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. sort of sanctions police, and it just poof gone um, and that's what the Russians sort of experienced they literally invaded a sovereign country thinking that their dollar assets would sit safe as bricks in the US treasury no one would dare touch their you know roughly 300 billion dollar stockpile of US assets that Russia had been earning over the last you know 20-30 years by selling oil and gas and wheat and the whole lot and they're like we can launch a war and the Americans will not touch our dollar assets because that's how much they love capitalism. And, that, and you know, that was sort of like the mind frame. We've been doing this. They love dollars. They just look the other way. They just, you know. And that suddenly changed. And that is the message that goes out to the people sitting in India and the people sitting in UAE that have bought all of these dollar assets. And they're like, holy moly, this all of our money could just turn into dust. Um, and that's when they're like, okay, so this is not as safe as we thought it was. Maybe we should be going somewhere else to find a safe asset where the ruler of that kingdom, let's say it's the UAE, <laughs> let's say it's the Sheikh of UAE, you know, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed or Salman from, you know, Saudi. And these guys are going to be the new London and the new Amsterdam. And they're going to hold their nose and look the other way. 
Um, and so that's mm-hmm. kind of what's been happening is places like Dubai have really shot up and um, a lot of dirty money and a lot of sort of, let's say, politically connected money um, has flown to them. And they have said, just buy an asset in, uh, that we issue and we look the other way. We don't care what your country does. We don't care who you invade. We don't care how many human rights you, know, you break. We just don't care. We are, good. we are the new London. We are the new Wild Wild West. Um, and, and that's the message that the Indians and the Chinese and the Russians and you know, the whole lot, they're all sort of converging in Dubai. And that's the source of, of what uh, Rana Faruhar was sort of talking about, mm-hmm. is these sovereigns sitting in the Gulf Kingdoms are suddenly really attractive um, and really sort of powerful. Um, and on the one hand, they have the dollars because they earn it by selling oil and gas. And they sit on massive piles in dollars. And what they usually do is they take those dollars and they buy U.S. assets, exactly the way that we were talking about earlier. They buy stuff in Wall Street. They just buy, you know, 2% of every stock listed on a stock exchange. Um, and they buy, you know, properties um, in your know, London's and Amsterdam's and so on. And so these um, dollar um, assets owned by UAE and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, you know, the, um, the Gulf Kingdoms are sort of the safe dollar assets. And they turn around on the other side and they say, you know what, we're going to turn these and not go to the West. We are now going to look to Eurasia. So we're going to invest in countries all across the global south. Um, and we're going to offer this sort of safe haven to investors, you know, from Modi's India, from Xi's uh, uh, Jinping's uh, China, and say, just don't worry, your country, when, you know, when it does naughty stuff and the West is unhappy, um, just, just to, it'll be safe. <laughs> it'll be safe in our sort of, in our um, war members. And that's kind of like, it, it's a risk, risk calculation that investors have to make on the one hand maybe we should just toe the line and just live according to the west rules and never invade anything and you know whatever like we shouldn't have any security interests independent of washington we should just toe the line so that's one possibility just toe the line the other one is you know what we've been growing with for 30 40 years we have all sorts of sort of regional uh, ambitions of exerting power and dominating and bullying and, and, and the whole lot. And we should be allowed to do it. We, we are the new sort of baddies on the block. Um, mm. And the U.S. has been sort of slowly retrenching from the Middle East. They've been retrenching and focusing their attention on the important theaters of the Pacific to counter China, or, you know, right now on, on uh, with NATO and, and Russia. So maybe, you know, we get more space to sort of muscle um, and, and create a security order that's sort of more uh, favorable to us. So that's kind of what Turkey is is really leveraging all around its neighborhood. It has sort of proxies and it has very, very expansionist, aggressive sort of foreign policy. Um, um, you, you're going to see that with China. You're going to see that with India. They're sort of going to have interest independent of Washington. But the problem is the moment they do that, they risk dollar sanctions. Mm. Mm. And uh, and therefore, their investors and their oligarchs, you don't just need new protectors, you also need new sort of safe investment mm. places. And, 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 you know, going back to sort of your original question, this just sounds amoral and this sounds sort of dark. Yeah. Right? 
Exactly. Um, and it also sounds, it's, and this is the, the kind of um, an unavoidable skepticism about this new non-aligned movement is that it's grounded primarily in leveraging self-interest and yeah. all of these possible members are countries who want, who would potentially want to instrumentalize it for their own power ambitions, yeah. as you were describing. And there's no real kind of moral glue that would stick it together. And there can't be yeah. because a lot of the people steering the ships are shady characters like Erdogan or Modi. There are only few good guys. Um, Thank goodness Lula's at the helm in, in Brazil, but I think he's going to face um, a lot of um, opposition were he to try and other allies to influence this to a yeah. more... I mean, direction. you can imagine Lula, Lula and others. I mean, I, I totally agree. This is very cold. It's very commercial. It's very amoral. Um, but what they are doing, what these sort of middle powers, let's call them, are doing, the Turkeys, UAEs, Indians, Indonesians, so what they are doing is they are leveraging their newfound power to change global rules, um, whether those are trading rules at the WTO, whether there are rules around debt and currency, whether there are rules around, you know, how much debt to GDP can your country carry, um, and so on, um, whether there are rules around IP with the, you know, with the vaccines, like we've seen in the last uh, two or three years, um, you know, South Africa, Brazil, India, they've all sort of tried to create sort of homegrown national vaccine champions that take some FDI and technology licensing um, from the Western co uh, companies that sort of devised the, the vaccine and they try and make it at home for, you know, the next pandemic and so on. So you, you, you definitely get a sense of like, yes, it's amoral, but they are sort of leveraging this power to change rules. Um, and they are sort of trying to maximize their autonomy. And mm. whether it's a right-wing government in power, whether it's a left-wing government in power, countries essentially don't like being bossed around. They mm. don't like being told what to do. So when the IMF sort of comes in and says, guys, clean up your shop and, you know, tax those people and start cutting your budgets here and do that, it's really like a very aggressive intrusion into your democracy. And, you know, you had the Greeks up in arms, you know, all flavors of Greeks up in, up in arms during, during the Greek crisis. And so there is something about kind of the sovereignist element of this, that we are, as a people are sovereign and we should sort of be free to make our own rules. And we can't have sort of predator cartels and sort of the IMF and the Troika or whoever like telling us what to do. And that is sort of a unifying pan-elite phenomenon. Mm -hmm both right-wing elites, left-wing elites sort of rally around the flag um, and rally around some independence and autonomy. And you could, you could very well argue that the reason that we have sort of like the Asian financial crisis, you know, post the Asian financial crisis, countries that had uh, a currency crisis and, you know, the IMF came in and, and told Indonesia what to do and Thailand what to do and Malaysia what to do. Each of these countries, like they turned around and spent the next 10 years piling up dollar assets and parking it in U.S. treasuries so that when they have the next currency crisis, they can protect their currencies by selling off the dollars that they have earned. And so they really went and bought U.S. treasuries from, um, uh, you know, in, in a very aggressive way. And, and it's, it, it, it was a very sharp turn of events post-1998. 
And what I think is going to happen now post-2022 is a lot of countries are going to sort of try and preserve their domain of, of sovereignty and autonomy, so to speak, by embarking on, you know, non-dollar uh, purchases. Uh, whether, you know, it's from the Middle East, like we talked about, whether it's, you know, from, from India, whether it's from China, you're going to have sort of a wave of de-dollarization that takes dollar assets sort of down a peg or two. I don't think it's going to be a very extreme de-dollarization, like a sudden mm-hmm. sort of break, but there will be um, uh, sort of a change in what countries buy with their um, surpluses. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting and helpful. Um, perhaps as a as a closing question, you you said that a lot of this is decided in domestic politics, and as we began, there are the main story of the main financial story of twenty twenty two rolling over to twenty twenty three is inflation, and you explained the strategy of central bankers to try and trigger a recession that can contain. Uh, the supply of of money um, is that should that be the is that the appropriate response? I've seen debates taking place between various left wing and progressive economists on this issue of whether this wave of inflation is something to actually be concerned about, or if we should be advancing an agenda that is against tightening monetary policy. Is this unfortunately? cold medicine to be administered in order to to weather the storm what should what should the appropriate response to inflation be i think one appropriate response is taking away from money from people who have too much to spend so that is not the bottom 50 or bottom 75% of a population that has you know we talk about inequality you know as spectacularly exploding post um, um, uh, 2020 um, sort of rescue and bailout packages for for all sorts of people that sort of stabilized the economy and that that was good, but it led to uh, an extreme surge in inequality. In a country like India, you know, you've had like uh, Gautam Adani and Ambani. Their their wealth has you know it's like a hockey stick. It's not just like oh they're like ten percent richer. They have like trebled their wealth in the last two years. So you have sort of a lot of oligarchic whatever like you know pools of money that governments can say oh yeah yeah yeah, we are all tightening our belts and guys you're in the same boat um and so you know i mean essentially if you could go after various shades of russian oligarchs and their dirty money why can't you go after the dirty money of your own uh, sort of leftcrat so you could imagine a populist kind of left-wing politics that says yes we are taxing uh, because we have a terrible budget deficit, guys, and you know, really sorry, but we we need to, you know, either like cut uh, nurses and children's education in schools, or we we tax these guys a bit more. So you could imagine sort of a populist response to inflation that says, yes, inflation is a problem, and we're going to take away the toys from the people that have too much. So that's that's sort of a you know a pro-populist kind of um, a response to inflationary politics. Um, another one, another sort of response can just be kind of like the the kick the can down the road where you get some debt write-offs, you sort of have easy dollars being made available to particularly poor and highly indebted countries so that they don't just completely 
um, collapse. So those are sort of things that uh, progressives in the West can push their governments for, so that you know these deals kind of get made at the at the IMF um, and uh, and the World Bank over the over the coming year. So debt write-offs are, are definitely possible at the international level. Domestically, raising taxes um, is possible because what you what you are getting right now with austerity politics is a cutting of taxes, cutting of taxes largely for rich people and businesses, and this is being sold as sort of a pro-growth measure, right? Um, so that that is that is sort of really nasty. Where the burden of pain and adjustment falls in the bottom, sort of eighty percent, ninety percent of the of the population of a country. So you know that can be that can be that can be reversed. But the the thing with inflation really is, um, you know, it has led to uh, sort of a wave of a strong labor strikes. So kind of what we were talking about, you know, truckers and and farmers and so on um, in in most countries on on strikes. Um, it ha- you know, particularly in richer countries, we've had a period of sort of fairly fast income and wage growth after um, sort of many years. Um, and that has put labor sort of structurally in a better bargaining position to strike and uh, push for sort of um, less burden to fall on them and, you know, um, pay scales that rise, uh, cost of living adjusted wages that rise with inflation. And so on. So you have in in most economies, like the the formal sector of the economy, the salaried employees tend to bargain with their employers and governments for cost of living adjusted contracts. So that's something that you can do because it's very hard to predict. Um, You know, the markets are highly uncertain and volatile about where is inflation going to be in six months or 12 months. And, you know, there's one school that says it's on its way down and it's our problem, it's going to go down. And others like, I don't know, what if there's another war? What if, you know, there's another terrible flood somewhere and, you know, all the chips in Taiwan, you know, stop or whatever it is. And so you have a lot of pressures piling up in answer, in unexpected places. And when you have volatility, um, just volatility just means uncertainty. No one really knows what's going to happen. And so you tend to sort of pull back. You tend to play it safe. You tend to retreat to cash. You don't want to go to the third world to lend money to risky sovereigns and so on. So this kind of period of uncertainty actually translates into um, sort of uh, more difficult um, borrowing in, 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 in the developing world. So with that kind of level of uncertainty, you really sort of... Um, and in, 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 I mean, in 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 my view, you know, most countries just need to batten down the hatches and prepare for another storm. I don't, you know, this is sort of part of why our new sort of online magazine is called the Poly Crisis. It's not just one thing; it's one thing after another, and they come up, um, you know, in unexpected places. And some of them are just, you know, the big charging elephants that everyone knows charging straight at you, such as the dollar debt crisis. You know, it's just going to keep charging. It's not going to suddenly stop. You know, the climate crisis isn't just going to stop. Climate crisis happens because you, you've just poured in a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. And that's not going to suddenly go down. It's just there. And it's going to keep creating floods and fires and, and volatile weather. And so you have a lot of sources of uncertainty and volatility. And it's unclear to me that, um, you know, inflation is just 
you can assume it's going to go down. So you have to sort of prepare, and you could prepare a country by uh, you know um, trying to trying to sort of um, uh, ward off the really nasty inflationary politics. Um, and try and do something sort of more sensible and growth oriented and, um, you know, solve people's actual problems, um, whether it's inequality, whether it's climate, you know, do some kind of growth and development um, for, a, for a country that is sustainable and so on. So it is a moment of sort of great political opportunity and opening for social movements to come up with ideas and push them through and win them in the parliaments and, and win them at the ballot boxes and apply pressure, you know, extra parliamentary pressure when these key moments of debt negotiations happen and so on. So there, there's a room for agency because none of this uncertainty is just going to disappear. You know, key actors and key countries have to make decisions. They have to coordinate their um, interests going back to sort of what they started. Tim, that was fantastic. I think agency for me is is the key word of 2023. Um, I think part of this moment is is that one can accept the sense of historic possibility closing in on us, but I think reminding everyone that there are options um, is going to be the important work to be done and grateful to yeah. you. Uh, for doing some of that. Thank you very much for for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and thanks so much for um, inviting me. A reminder to everyone, I've been chatting to Tim Sahai, who's currently the Senior Policy Manager at the Green New Deal Network, which is a coalition of labor, climate, and environmental justice organizations, growing a movement to pass national and international green policies. If you would like to listen to more discussions about politics and culture in the world from an African and left-wing perspective, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but most importantly, subscribe to the Africa as a Country podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back every week with more of these discussions. Uh, and thank you for listening. We will catch you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>